All right, <clears throat> lesson 38. So we're going to be this morning, Jesus the Victor. So this last lesson in um, this semester in looking at soteriology and Christology. So just the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ and all that that means. And, and so let me, let me pray for us as we jump in. Well, Father, we give you um, all the glory and all the praise for the great works that you have done in Christ, the great works that you have done for our salvation through the life and death and resurrection of your Son. We yeah, thank you that we don't, you know, we don't have to overcome death ourselves. We don't have to overcome sin ourselves. We don't have to overcome Satan. Um, you have done all of that through your Son. You have conquered all of our enemies. And so now, by faith, we trust in you we look to Jesus. We delight in him. We pray that as we just look into your word and consider these things this morning, that you would grow our faith, that you would um, grow our humility, that we would be more dependent upon you, not less, that we would be more boasting in the cross of Christ and less boasting in ourselves, that we would be full of hope, that we would be full of joy, that we would live life more free more free to love you, more free to love one another, more free to serve with cheerfulness, knowing that our souls are secure in Jesus. So help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus the victor. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 56, 57, reads, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of a theme verse for us this morning. Praise be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because over the past few weeks we've been considering the, the great work of Jesus Christ as our substitution. As the one who's represented us before God um, and upon the cross as a payment for sin. We've looked at him as our atoning sacrifice. His body's been broken in our place. His blood has atoned for our sin, washed it away. And so the truly good news of the gospel is that if we have been born again by the Spirit, if we've been united to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, then, then the holy wrath of God to us has been propitiated. That's the word that Mark talked about last week, that it has been satisfied. And that all of our sin has been expiated, meaning removed and sent far away. All of our guilt has been taken away by his sacrifice. That the death of Jesus was enough uh, to secure our pardon forever. It's why at the cross, Jesus is going to cry out, it's finished. John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That the work that the Father had sent him to complete had been completed. That whatever God had said, here's what you are to do, he did it. He finished it. His death satisfied the law's demands for justice. It satisfied God, God's wrath upon sin and sinners. That in the day you eat of it, Jesus, or God said to Adam, you will surely die. But now rather than us dying, Jesus dies. 
and God's going to say it's acceptable. And that's why we describe his work with the phrase penal substitutionary atonement. You know, penal, sort of legal substitution, meaning God's sub- Jesus substitute in our place, and then atonement, meaning payment for our sin. And that's the doctrine that we covered in the previous two, two lessons. What we're going to look at today is how Jesus, though, at the cross, did more than just that. That's, that's how he righted our relationship with God. That's how, through his substitutionary atoning death, he reconciled us to God. But then he also changed our relationship to other things. And namely, he changed our relationship to sin. He changed our relationship to Satan. He changed our relationship to death. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ not only satisfied the wrath and justice of God, he did that, but he also overcame sin and defeated Satan and conquered death. That's the big idea for this morning. That yes, he reconciled us to God the Father, but then he also conquered these other things. So where we're going to start is with um, theories of the atonement. And the reason it's going to be important is because really this idea of Jesus the victor fits within what some have called these various theories of atonement. Meaning the, the, the question that it asks or answers is why did Jesus have to die? What did his death accomplish? That's sort of the question that we're, we're trying to answer with these theories of atonement. And there's been all kinds of perspectives of the atonement that have been proposed over the centuries and all of them emphasizing different aspects of Jesus' work on the cross. They try to answer the question, what did his death achieve? And so there's going to be some theories that deny, actually, the deity of Jesus Christ, like the martyrdom theory. So there's this one theory of the atonement that is the martyrdom theory that even denies that Jesus was God. And that he was just a martyr that went to the cross and that God somehow accepted his death of a martyr as somehow satisfying to him. Other theories claim his death secured and accomplished atonement for all people and all time. And so that's, those are universalist atonement theories. There's a whole set of those. Or universal reconciliation theory is one of those. And so there's all sorts of theories that fall outside the bounds of what we would even call Christian faith. And so we're not even going to look at those. But there's going to be a number of them that, that fall within that just emphasize different parts of uh, atonement and what Jesus' death achieved. And they're important because they're, they're important how we understand what Jesus was victorious over. One is recapitulation theory. You have that there in front of you. In the Christos Victor theories or part of these, Irenaeus kind of started these. If you know much about the church fathers, Irenaeus was one of the earliest, lived in the, in the you know, 130 AD to 202 AD. And what he believed the death of Christ accomplished is that it recuperated, it recapitulated everything that Adam had lost. So everything Adam lost in the garden of life and fellowship with God, on the, that, that Jesus' death recuperated all of that. That that's what he had to die to do. That all that was lost through the failures of the sinful, ray, of, of sinful people. And so Jesus rose victorious over Satan and sort of reversed the effects of the fall. Recapitulation. And so one of the theories of this category is referred to as the Christos Victor theory. It was made popular by a theologian in the early 20th century. 
where he highlights Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death, but at the same time, I think, tends to wrongly minimize his work as a satisfaction to God. And that's where these kinds of theories, I think, is where we would disagree. They would say that what it does, okay, Jesus died to recuperate all this that had been lost, to reverse the fall, but it doesn't really emphasize what needed to be done with God. That God the Father's wrath had to be satisfied. That God the Father's law had to be appeased. A second big area is ransom payment to Satan theory. This is another uh, across church history, just theory of the atonement. Origen was one of the first ones to sort of promote this theory and hold to it. That he saw Christ's death as a payment to Satan, as a ransom that was paid to Satan, and that that's what it had to accomplish. Listen to this quote from Origen. He says, To whom was the ransom paid? Certainly not to God. Can it be to the evil one? For he had power over us until the ransom was given to him on our behalf, namely the life of Jesus. And he was deceived, thinking he would keep his soul in his power, not seeing that he could not reach the standard required so as to be able to keep him in his power. It's a quote from Origen, where he says, surely the ransom wasn't paid to God, it was paid to Satan. Now, what's the problem with that? Yeah, so one issue is, who, where's the debt? Like, who's, who's holding the debt for our sin? Is it Satan holding it, or is it God? You <clears throat> same when you think about the Exodus narrative, when the Passover lamb is offered, and the blood is put on the doors, for whose appeasement is it? Pharaoh's? Yeah, who, who's the one that's going to see the blood and pass over? It's going to be the angel of death, or it's going to be God himself that's going to pass over. And so we even see in how the atonement is prefigured in different areas of the Old Testament. It's never as a payment to the devil. Just as in Exodus, it wasn't a payment to Pharaoh. Um, yeah, so that's one of the major ones um, that's out there, the ransom theory to Satan. Uh, a third is satisfaction theory. Anselm made this one popular in the 12th century where it teaches that Christ made restitution to God for the sins of humanity and satisfied God's honor, that that's sort of what was at stake. Satisfied his honor through his perfect obedience. And so this is going to be a building block for what Calvin and others are going to use to develop penal substitutionary atonement. But yet he's going to emphasize more than anything that it's sort of God's honor that has to be recovered, that it's his honor that has to be satisfied, and it, not so much wrath. Not so much judgment. So what you'll see in so many theories of the atonement is what people have so much trouble with is the idea of God's wrath. And so many theories of the atonement over the centuries have sort of not wanted to make the cross about that. That this was about God's justice and God's wrath being satisfied. The idea, why do you think we're uncomfortable with that? Yeah, we just we want to look at him as a very loving God, yes. I think from our point of view it's hard to understand righteous anger because we don't have to experience righteous anger. So yeah. when we see somebody being wrathful, it's like that's sinful, you know. So yes. it's hard, I think, to think of God doing it in, yes. in a way that's not. And so people just think, well, God's not wrath. Yeah, that it's seen as a character blemish. Yeah. 
not a, a glorious attribute of God when, when holy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mark? In some way, we want to satisfy ourselves. Meaning, um, in some way, we want to earn it, we want to pay for it. And so the idea of the, that someone else having to go in our place and actually satisfy it, yeah, that's, that's always going to be unattractive to the flesh. The idea that whatever we bring, whatever we offer, could never possibly be enough. I think there's overall, too, just the discomfort with the idea of that God pouring out wrath on his son. You know, it's why you read the story of Abraham and Isaac when he takes him to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. Every single verse of that story, you just feel unnerved, right? Like every step, all the way, he's, he's bound, he's put there on, he's about to slay his son, and you're going, this is all wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And yet that's just going to be a foreshadowing of what God the Father is going to do at the cross, where he's going to bind his son there and put him to death as an atonement for sin. There's something about that, that being wrath and wrath poured out on his own son that is very hard to swallow. But yet everywhere we go in Scripture, we see that's, that's what the Scripture is teaching. Yeah, moral influence theory is another one. Peter Abelard, 12th century, where the cross was a demonstration of God's love, here it is again, and motivates Christians to love God and others. And so it's, the cross is a great moral influence for the followers of Jesus. And so, again, you would still trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, but what did the cross accomplish? Well, it accomplished great moral influence and motivated Christians. So again, the primary effect, you notice the emphasis is on the effect on people. Not necessarily the effect on God. There's another area where all these different theories of atonement go in different directions on, is the cross about doing something toward God? Or is it just about doing something toward us? Um, yeah, there's other theories we could, we could go into. Um, penal substitutionary atonement theory is the one that we've been teaching. <clears throat> it's the one we teach at this church. It's the one we've been teaching over recent weeks. Made prominent by, by Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, um, others especially from the Reformed tradition. Um, I think there's evidence, too, of some of the early church fathers. You read enough Augustine, you go, okay, I think he believed this. Just the way, he's not using the same words, but the way he's talking about it. He's, I think he, he's going to land here. Where the central work of the cross is between God the Son and God the Father, not between Jesus and me. It's primarily, firstly, an interaction there. And it's not primarily between God the Father and God the Son and Satan. God's using Satan in the process, not relating or reconciling or doing something with Satan. The primary work is there. <clears throat> God the Father used Satan just as he used Judas Iscariot, just as he used the religious leaders. Just as he used the Romans in putting Jesus to death and in doing so satisfying his holy justice. That that's really primarily and firstly what the cross is about. It's God that has to be atoned. It's his wrath that needs to be satisfied. Yeah, Romans 3, if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 3. Someone read for us verses 23 through 26.
You know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, meaning declared righteous before God as a gift because of His grace, His unmerited favor toward us. Through the redemption, that is the purchase from slavery, that is in Christ Jesus, whom who put forward? Don't you love that? Whom God put forward. Not the Romans, not Satan, not, that God put forward as a propitiation as a satisfaction for his wrath, as a satisfaction for his justice, by his blood. He's going to see the blood and it's going to satisfy him. To be received by faith. And this was to show, make a display of God's righteousness. His holy, perfect standard of righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, just in patience over the previous centuries, He passed over former sins, meaning he didn't hold them accountable, the Old Testament saints, in that moment, waiting for this day. It doesn't mean he just didn't care about it. He just pushed them away and they didn't matter. It means, okay, he's not going to call these debts due. He's going to forestall. He's going to wait until the present time where he can show his righteousness, meaning, I think, a couple things. One, to show what his righteousness really requires to be said. Like, okay, if sins are going to be paid for, if they're going to be atoned for, here's what it will take. The perfect, infinite Son of God dying for them. That there's nothing any of the saints of old, any of us could have done to achieve his righteousness. That that's what it required. So that he might be just, meaning he's still punishing sin. He's still doing what he said he would do, that death is the wages of sin. And yet at the same time, justify the one who has faith in Christ so that he can actually justify you and not be unjust. That really is the problem the cross had to solve, right? It's not how, how does he send sinners to hell. It's how does he forgive a sinner without compromising his character? How does he actually forgive you and reconcile you and still be just? Because he were just to let us into his presence and let us live with him forever as unforgiven sinners, then the whole universe would cry out injustice. The heavenly realm, the, the angels would cry out injustice, that this sinner would be allowed to live forever. But here, through the death of his son, okay, he can be just and justify us at the same time. That that's what the cross is going to accomplish. And so by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ did in fact conquer sin, Satan, and death, but through offering himself to God as a ransom for many, by being a perfect substitute who satisfies the wrath and justice of God. And so the doctrine of substitution really is crucial to our understanding of the atonement. Um, And different theories of the atonement over the years have sort of just left that part out. Um, but it's one that why we spent a couple of weeks looking at how important it is, that, you know, just the doctrine of substitution to understand the atonement. He was condemned in our place. We get to go free. He was broken instead of us. He satisfied the righteousness of God in our place so that we can stand righteous before him. <clears throat> any questions about any of that before we actually jump into the victory of Christ? Yeah, Tim. So, So for people who see, who have different, um, you know, 
like we talked about different plots of how the atonement works. Um, is this one of those areas where we can agree but still be <coughs> Christians or disagree and still be Christians? Or is this something that we would say, no, like we need to really kind of narrow in on what we're talking about? Yeah, no, that's good. So I think... I think often it helps, especially within a local church, to narrow in on what we're talking about. That's why we do that here. But then there'll be, so all the ones I mentioned in terms of satisfaction theory, uh, we didn't talk about the governmental theory, that's another one, moral influence theory, um, those are all within the bounds of Christian faith. Where they're going to still see Jesus as divine, as the Son of God. They're still going to see, okay, his death as the thing that saves you. Just, they're going to disagree about why or how or who does it really sort of pay out. Even the ransom theory to Satan, we would go, okay, that's not right, but you can still be a Christian and think that. Um, you can still be a Christian and go, okay, Jesus is the, yeah, that he, he influences us at, th at the cross. It's his death that counts as ours, but but the way it's thought about, again, we could, it would take all day to go into all the, the nuances of it. But those are all, I put those theories there because they're all within the bounds of Christian faith. There's going to be others that you're going to get into that I shared earlier, like the universalist, universal um, reconciliation theory. It just says, okay, Jesus died on the cross and now everybody's forgiven. That the atonement is applied to everyone, whether they repent and look to him and trust in him or not. And so we would go, okay, that, that guts the... <laughs> you know, the gospel of some pretty important pieces. And so we would say that's not what it is. Um, so, so yeah. There's always John 3.16. I mean, it's just really simple. Um, uh, the way that uh, Jesus put it to us, you know, um, it's just that believe in him and, 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 um, and, and, and you won't perish. So uh, yeah. it doesn't give the theory behind it. So. Yeah, it just says whoever believes in him. There is this, it's in there, this idea that you must turn from sin and believe in him. Yeah. Now the victory of Jesus Christ, that's where we're going to focus <clears throat> most of our attention today. Because the Bible does teach that Jesus Christ conquered sin, Satan, and death through his life and death and resurrection. Any of y'all grew up um, singing Up From the Grave He Arose? That's one I grew up singing. And it really is a hymn that's about the victory of Christ. Um, it says, low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Then up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He rose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And so the whole hymn is about the victory of Christ and his resurrection. And what we're going to talk about is three big areas where he actually won that victory for us. The first is over sin. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. And someone read for us verses 5 through 11. Thank you. 
Uh, through 11. Be great. And so you can see why words like substitution are so important to our understanding of the atonement, just from passages like this. He's going to say things like, the old self was crucified with him. Substitution. We have died with Christ. Vicarious substitution. We also live with him. The death he died to sin once for all. Those kind of words. But then, what's the result? Where, what are the phrases in here that you can see that tell you Jesus conquered sin for us? What are some of the phrases? So the body of sin brought to nothing. There's one statement of victory over sin. Where else? What comes right after that? <clears throat> so we no longer be enslaved to sin. There's another statement about victory over sin. Where else? Set free from sin. So it's those kinds of phrases you see in the past that go, okay, this is where Christ arose victorious over sin on our behalf. And because we're united to him, we're set free from sin. Because we're united to him, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Because we're united to him, the body of sin has been put to death. And this is important to understanding just what Christ actually conquered for us. Because before God intervened for our salvation, that's where we were. We were enslaved to sin. You know, John 8, Jesus offered the Jews freedom. If you remember, he offered the Pharisees freedom, and they were offended. When Jesus says, hey, I'm going to offer to set you free. You remember what the Pharisees said when he offered them freedom? Not yeah, we're not. What are you talking about? We've never been slaves to anybody, which is, number one, ironic, since they're under imperial Rome at the time, they say it. <clears throat> but then number two, what they don't see his meaning is they're enslaved to sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the practice of sin, as the Bible's always saying, an unregenerate heart living in sin, <clears throat> refusing to repent and turn to Christ. So no longer slaves of sin, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so that we would be set free from sin. These are all things that Paul is, is saying in Romans 6 that we now have in Christ, where sin no longer has dominion over you. It's another way he's going to say it. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Second big area of victory is over Satan. When sin entered the world through Adam, and the temptation to sin came into the world through Satan's deceit of Eve and her subsequently giving the fruit to Adam to eat. And so they sinned and death entered creation. And because of their sin, God cursed the world and God cursed them. Then also God cursed Satan. And in particular, listen to what he says <clears throat> To the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
And so we see even there, just from the very beginning that sin enters the world, there's now going to be this power struggle, this relationship between Satan and the seed of woman. But at the same time, throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that now mankind is almost in the grips of Satan from there onward. Matthew 12, 26 through 29. This is Jesus after the Pharisees ironically accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Here's what Jesus said. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in that passage, who's the strong man that needs to be bound? They're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he's saying, you know, if Satan's divided against himself, how's this kingdom going to stand? How can I, with the power of Satan, why would I cast out demons? He says, no, but in order to plunder the strong man's house, the strong man must be bound. And so who's the strong man that Jesus is talking about? It's Satan. So this is Jesus coming to earth, coming to his household, binding the strong man, binding Satan, in order to plunder his goods. And what are the goods he's going to plunder? Souls. It's us. So Jesus is saying, so I'm not doing the work of Satan. I'm conquering Satan. I'm in the process of it. And so even through those passages, we really see how serious the problem is for us. Number one, slaves to sin. That's the biggest trouble. Number two, slaves of Satan. Jesus is going to use the phrase, children of the devil. And so can goods just walk out of the strong man's house on their own? Or does someone stronger have to come, bind the strong man, and plunder the goods? That's what Jesus is saying here. Peter described the work of Christ in a similar way. Um, This is Acts 10, 36-38. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Even when Peter is recounting the the life and ministry of Jesus, he's seeing, yeah, he came in the power of the Spirit, for God was with him, to heal all who were oppressed by the devil, to set them free from his grips. Or Colossians 2, turn there if you would. Colossians chapter 2. Somebody read for us verses 13 through 15. Over them, them in 
Yeah, by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, referring to, yeah, the demonic realm. Yeah, and interesting, Satan is not the only one being conquered, but you see the entire demonic realm is being put, the Bible says here, to open shame. That Christ triumphed over them, all of them. The author of Hebrews is going to understand the death of Jesus um, in a similar way. There was a critical step in what he says, destroying the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so here we see it again, just Jesus in his death, conquering the devil, conquering the one who had the power of death. <clears throat> the real power the devil has over human beings, firstly, is their deadness to God and all that that entails, but then also physical death. Um, there's a degree to which God uses Satan as an instrument to bring physical death. Satan loves darkness. He loves to keep everyone in the darkness. And he loves to kill, right? Jesus said that. He comes to kill. He loves to kill. I think it's one of the reasons why anytime I read stories of suicide, if you've ever read them or just behind it, I mean, immediately you're felt, you feel this sense of the darkness of it, right? You feel that just the, the tragedy of a person deceived by the devil to take their own life. And because that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to kill, whether people by their own hand or by one another's hand. And none of it happens outside the providence of God, but God does give Satan a degree of power or authority over taking lives. Remember even when um, Job wants to afflict, or, uh, Satan wants to afflict Job, and he goes, Satan has to go to God for permission. And says, I want to strike him. And remember, God would always put limits. They say, okay, well, you can touch all his stuff, but you can't touch him. And then when he's going to let him strike Job with sickness, he says, okay, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. And what does Satan do? Does he take his life? Isn't that comforting? God goes, well, you can't take his life. And then he doesn't, because he can't. But you do see a degree of authority at times that God will give over the devil in taking life. And that's also a reason why Satan was the perfect instrument to use in the crucifixion of Jesus. Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders, who turned him over to the Romans, who executed him. And so for that moment, God gave Satan a degree of power over death, and he used it to put Jesus to death, which God used from beginning to end to redeem his people from the dead to snatch them from the hands of the devil. And this is part of what Paul means by he disarmed rulers. He disarmed Satan of the one weapon he had against us, the one thing he had to control us, death. And it's like Jesus walked up through his death and resurrection and just snatched that weapon right out of Satan's hand. He disarmed him. Which is why we don't have to live any longer in the fear of death. Right? That's some of what we'll get to here in a little bit, that the devil was the instrument of his own defeat, that death was the implement of his own demise for all who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so Satan's going to, or God's going to use Satan to defeat himself. And then thirdly, death. This is the third area of victory. Sin, Satan, and death. That if we've been born again by the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, then we need to no longer fear death. That death now has become a doorway to eternity in the presence of God. I've used the illustration before, like after this class is over, we all have to leave. Is anyone going to be afraid of walking out that door? Like the doors are going to open and you're going to look at the door and go, oh no, a door. How many of us look at a door and go, this is a terrible thing? What do we do? We just walk through it. Why? It's just from one room to the next. And that's how now we, the Bible talks about death for the Christian. It's just a door. It's to pass from this life to the next. And we don't have to fear it. But if you're outside Christ, if you're in the grips of the devil, what do you think of death? No, it's terrifying. It's frightening. And that's why it's talking about in Hebrews, him to destroy the one who has the power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear is enslaving. And the fear of death is the most enslaving thing of all. And in some of the evidence of it in our world today is how much people avoid thinking about it, avoid facing it, avoid dealing with it, make light of it, joke about it. And some of that, I think, is just to mask the overwhelming fear of death that people live in. But for us, the first death will come, the second death will not. So the first death will grab us in the grave, but it can't hold us, just as it couldn't hold Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. What a statement. He abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That Jesus abolished death and now brings life and immortality. That's what the gospel proclaims. Yeah, so that when he calls Lazarus from the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, and, and Lazarus comes out, that's not so much because Jesus thinks, you know what Lazarus needs? He just needs more years on earth. Lazarus will love that. No, it's to make a statement that he is the resurrection and the life, that he has a, he's the one who's going to abolish it, put it to an end, where death has no power. Like just with his words, he's able to call someone out. You know, the, the son of the, of the widow of Nain, where the, there, there's a funeral procession, and he just walks up to the casket and just touches it. They stop, and he just tells the young man to arise. And he just sits up and starts talking. It's those kinds of moments where Jesus isn't saying, okay, you really want to live here on this earth like this forever. He's saying, okay, I have power over this. I have authority over death. And that all those who die in Christ Jesus will be raised to eternal life. Yeah, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57, perhaps one of the strongest statements about Christ the victor over death. 
Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. Someone read for us verses 50 through 57. gives us victory over death, victory over the power of sin. Because the thing that brings death is sin, which is why Paul calls it here the, the sting of death, that sin is the sting, death is the result. And the thing that judges and holds the sinner in custody until death is the law. The thing that on the last day condemns the sinner is the law. So that's what's going to have the power to condemn the power to put to death. But since Christ died in our place, we're released from those legal demands of the law, the ones that at least that call for our death. So no longer are we condemned. That's the victory of the cross. That's Jesus paying our ransom. And then the end, Revelation 20. Uh, if you want to turn there, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that Jesus will even destroy death. You know, Paul's going to go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And there in verse 11, there's going to be a great white throne. Him who is seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And all the dead are going to be raised. All the dead are going to be judged. The sea are going to give up their dead. Death and Hades, verse 13, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them. And then verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's quite a scene where the first death is put to death in the second death where the first death is thrown to the lake of fire. And what it means is there'll no longer be any physical death. No more first death for anyone, which will be awful if you're thrown into the lake of fire because it means you're thrown in there and you, there's no hope for death. It's one of the great verses on why, how annihilationism can't be true, where we see everyone resurrected to eternal life or death. And that some who are written in the book of life, praise God, us, will dwell in the presence of God forever. But then everyone else will be thrown into the lake of fire where also the first death is thrown. Which means all those who are thrown into the lake of fire also won't ever die. Because the first death is even destroyed. And I think we're going to be present, of course, when all this happens. It says that all are raised and are going to be there to be judged. So we'll probably watch death being put to death. Which I think is one reason why it says in Revelation 21.4, right after this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In other words, I think there will be a degree of sadness, of tears, because that, that will be a hard day when we see so many condemned forever. Many we may know while we go on to eternal life. And what it says is, and God will wipe away our tears, and death will be no more, and all that will give way to joy and gladness. But there will just be that sobering day where the reality of death will be most felt, but then death will be put to death. So that is the victory that Christ has secured for us at the cross and his resurrection is victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over death. And I think there's implications for that. Um, and there's going to be a few areas all related to that that we'll talk about now. But any questions before we keep going? Any comments even about what we've said so far? Yeah, I'm Could be. I mean, this is, it happens right after that. Um, and and it, the tears could be over many things, but it is just the idea that it will be a day of great loss. A day of huge losses. And I don't think we'll just sit there watching everybody be thrown in the lake of fire laughing or smiling. Or I think we're going to witness something that's truly um, heartbreaking. And so it could be, the tears could be for many things. But I think that will be one of them, <laughs> you know, is just the grief over so much death. Um, the sorrow over all the repent unrepentance that till that last day has led to death. Um, and then I think all that's going to give way to eternity of yeah, joy, delight in the presence of God. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just going to be we're all going to be raised in the presence of God in the throne room and it's just going to all feel great. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of sadness, too. Because, um, again, we could all probably think of people we love right now who, if Jesus were to come back right now, if this was all to happen right now, there would be people we love, truly love, that are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And I don't think we're meant to be uncalloused, or, or cal rather callous to that. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Implications. The first one is... Just, yeah, living outside the dominion of sin. We looked at this in Romans 6, where Paul shared what he did about being united to Christ and being set free from sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Just the idea that you really are set free from sin. Now, does sin still feel really tempting sometimes? Does it still feel at times like it, it's enslaving? And that's why we need the gospel that keeps telling us, yeah, you're not enslaved to sin. You can say no by the grace of God. You can resist. You can live outside its dominion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace.
release me from this. Help me yeah. not be this way. Yeah. Is, that, is that what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so it's in it. You see it now. Number one, you see sin for sin. That's one of the gifts of grace as you start recognizing what it is. Number two, it grieves you. It saddens you. It's something that you don't want. That, right there, that is a statement of freedom from sin, just that you don't want it. You know, and because again, outside of Christ, there's, there may be some sins you don't like because it makes your life miserable, but there's a whole lot that we just don't mind. And so just the idea that you begin to grieve it is a statement of being set free from it. But then that you would then cry out to God and say, Lord, help me, strengthen me to resist this. Even that's a statement of, of freedom, something that we don't do in a genuine way or a consistent way before regeneration. And so, so just that whole process you described is part of it. And then learning how to walk free. You know, I like to say that it's like we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to death. We were in this prison cell. And then the Holy Spirit united us to Christ. Our eyes are open. We, through faith in Him and repentance, we're set free. All the shackles fall off. All the cell doors open to the prison. And then we get to walk out. But maybe we've been sitting in that cell for about 20 years. And we kind of got used to the smell. And we got used to the feeling of the metal on our wrists. And so from time to time, we just kind of like to go back. And we go back to that prison. We walk back to that cell. And we sit down. And we take those shackles and we try to put them back on. But what happens? They just don't, they don't clasp anymore. We try to shut the prison door. But what happens? keeps flinging open, and so it's a voluntary <laughs> seat we're taking in there. What Paul's wanting us to see is you don't have to be there. You are set free, but then there is a lifetime of learning how to live that out. Lifetime of learning, okay, there are better smells than what's in here. There are better feelings than just those feelings, but it sure is familiar. Um, and so Praise God for sanctification, there's, there's time, there's change. He progressively conforms us to the image of Christ over time. But what he wants us to see is you're not a slave of it anymore. Um, you are set free. You are a new creation in Christ. You are able to resist sin and pursue righteousness. But then also living beyond the control of Satan. Yeah, turn if you would to Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. That now, by the grace of God in Christ, we can be armored to stand against the schemes of the devil. Somebody read Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Yeah, to stand firm. And I love this, that he's, he's kind of showing you, hey, we don't wage war against flesh and blood. As followers of Christ, we wage war against the demonic realm, against rulers and principalities, against really powerful forces of darkness. But I love, there's, there's nothing fancy about what he tells us to do. What does he tell us to do? 
Therefore, take up the full armor of God. And he's going to say afterwards, it's going to be, um, yeah, things like truth, things like righteousness, things like the gospel, things like prayer, things like faith. And so he doesn't give us some confusing chant or some, here's the 98 steps of this. It's just, yeah, here's how you arm yourself for that spiritual war. But the good news is you can be armed. <laughs> you can stand firm. God in his grace does give you things that can resist the devil. God hears our prayers. Then also, secondly, we can resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 4 or 6 through 7, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5 is going to say something very similar. Just this idea that there's a way by taking up the armor of God, by responding in prayer, by crying out to God for his mercy, by resisting those temptations, that, that he does actually flee. Then also living without fear of, of death. Yeah, Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So he's going to say, hey, don't fear people. All they can do is torture you to death, which sounds bad, but he's like, don't fear that. Fear God, who, after he's killed your body, can throw body and soul into hell. But then after he says that, he says... Basically, unless you're his kids, because a, not a, one swallow falls to the ground without him, him ordaining it, and you can buy two of those for a penny. And so how much more you, his child, is he going to care? So he says, don't fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. And I just, I love how Jesus puts all that together. Fear God. He's the one who can really do something. But if you're reconciled to him through Christ and you're his child, don't fear. You're precious to him. He'll take care of you. Don't worry. Don't live in the fear of death. So we don't need to fear the first death. It's a doorway to glory. We don't need to fear the second death because we've been ransomed from it by the blood of Christ. Which means we don't need to cling to this present world for our inheritance is somewhere else. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So those are the kind of words that only make sense if you've been ransomed from death. It only makes sense if you've been given eternal life to just not worry, to don't fear. And so now nothing can separate us from God. Turn, if you would, to Romans 8. This is where we'll close. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That really is the ultimate statement of victory. Where he just says, Christ has been so victorious over every possible enemy, over sin, over Satan, over death, that now we know, okay, nothing can possibly separate us from the love of God. Any questions or comments or, yeah, just thoughts before we close? Yeah, yeah. The, that's a good, yeah, good question. So I think it's, number one, I think when done in a humble way, um, to keep diving more deeply into the Word of God, to keep making sense of what God is saying, to keep growing an understanding of the Word, to, to move from, okay, Jesus is dying on the cross as a payment to Satan. If someone is believing that, I think maturing toward, no, no, he's dying to pay a ransom to God. I think that's growth. And so I think it's important for us in local churches to be able to teach and disciple in a way that moves us from a theory of atonement that that may be Christian, but isn't exactly what the Bible teaches in that way. And we could pick a lot of different areas where that's sort of the case. Similar of, um, yeah, where we talked about just being set free from uh, Satan, you know, and, and there's going to be lots of individuals who believe that you can still be demon-possessed as a Christian. There's going to be people that, that believe that you're still in the power of the devil, and so, you, and so exorcism and all these things that in certain kinds of prayer that have entered the church over the last 10 years, I think it's from a misunderstanding of the victory of Christ over the devil, and now what does God call us to do in light of that? Or it may be in how we relate to sin, that some believe that, no, as a Christian, you're, you can still be enslaved to sin. And therefore, here are the things you have to do to defeat. Where we say, well, no, that, I, think, I think the scripture would teach more that, no, we're set free from sin. What does that mean now? And so I think part of what I mean is uh, in the local church, I think it's a place where those kinds of details, when done in a humble, careful way, where we're studying scripture, understand what does God really teach? actually matures us as believers without getting bogged down, I think, in, okay, here's all these other theories, and we're going to make a chart with them and memorize them and, and talk tons and tons about all the details of this. Like, if somebody wants to read up on those things and learn those things, I think that's great. But there's a reason we didn't go into all that here, is because at that level, um, I think it can get distracting. Um, yeah, we'll see it today in, in Daniel, Daniel 8, as I preach from Daniel 8 or some of Daniel, where there's just all these, de- okay, what time is this going to happen and what calendar for this and when's Jesus going to do Like, you can get so bogged down in the details that you miss the point. And so we don't want to do that. 
Um, but we do want to at least over time do enough um, that it actually moves us from um, thinking or believing about God or about His Word that isn't quite as in line with what His Word is it, as it says. But does that kind of answer? Or? Yeah. Okay, good question though. Well, Ben, will you pray for us? And Amen. All right. Thanks, y'all.